Thank you guys for coming. I know having this after church can make for a long day. We're hoping that the pizza has helped with that a little bit. But uh, we didn't know what to expect as far as attendance goes. And so if you all are committed to doing this, if it's after church, just let me know and we'll pick a different room. But uh, yes? Yeah, all right. Obviously, you'll fluctuate from topic to topic. Um, we are, uh, we're thrilled for this context. It's, it, it allows us to address some things that we don't always get to address, certainly not thoroughly, from the pulpit. And the design for renewing your mind is not to teach all things Bible, necessarily. Uh, we have Sunday school that, that does that. We could do that in our community groups. The idea of, of renewing your mind is to address some of the, the cultural hot topics uh, that appear in your social media feeds that you're hearing all day long, every day of the week, but you're not always getting to hear, oh, what, what, what do our pastors think the Bible says about that? Or what does God have to say about that? Because uh, that's not necessarily filling your feed. We've created Renewing Your Mind to do that. And so if you go back over the last few years, you'll see a wide variety of topics that we've picked for Renewing Your Mind. Uh, we are doing, uh, today, obviously, we're doing critical race theory, engaging that from a Christian perspective. Uh, in March, we are doing uh, the issue of what the Bible has to say about authority, the good, the bad, and the ugly, how to come under it, how to keep it accountable. Uh, it'll cover all of those things. And right now, I sure wish I remember what we were doing in April. Anybody remember what we're doing? Oh, it's you. That's you. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, we're going to be talking. Thank you. We're going to be talking about uh, Christianity in a hypersexualized world. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so like, you know, just, just easy, fluffy topics. Um, we like to pick them easy, impress everybody. Uh, no, we want to we want to deal with the hard things because that's where we're all living, isn't it? And so that's what renewing your mind is for. Uh, the material you're going to be hearing today, and Andy, I hope I'm not taking away from your introduction. I won't say too much. Uh, there's nobody I'd want to hear more than Andy on this topic. Andy presented this uh, a bulk of this material. I'm sure it's repackaged for here, but a bulk of this material in a uh, in an ethnic harmony meeting that we did. Um, that uh, I wanted more people to hear it. I wanted it to be in another context, and I wanted him to repackage it for this context. And so uh, so he's put a lot of thought, not just into this since I asked him to do it a little while ago, but much of his life he has focused on this topic of critical theory, and he'll get into all of that. I want you to benefit from careful thinking that is coupled with biblical thinking and designed for biblical application into our lives. And I hope that's not too high a bar. Andy's going to reach all that in this lecture. So why don't we welcome Andy. We good? Great. Never underestimate the power of pizza. <laughs> it is great to see everybody here, really, when, uh, when Abby... Uh, printed out these outlines, and she had like 65 outlines, and I said, man, we just killed some trees unnecessarily. <laughs> and, uh, but it's great to need more, uh, which says a lot. It says a lot about you that you want to hear about this. I know for you this isn't about pizza. You get pizza at home. You're here because you want to talk about serious things as believers, and you want to know how to think through them, and you want to know what we think about them. Um, when I first gave this talk back in 2022, the idea of critical theory, race theory was... 
I would say a new concept, but it was a new concept culturally. It was a hot topic culturally for many people. It's indicative of our world that less than two years later, everybody seems to have an opinion about it and or know how to use the phrase as some kind of critique of something or has just moved on to something else that they're concerned about. But you're here because this topic matters to you. And you want to hear what the pastors have to say about it. So I commend you for that. I really, I really deeply appreciate the fact that you'd come. And I don't expect what I say to be what, uh, to be agreeable to everybody. I don't think you can address a topic like this and have everybody walk out going, yeah, that's what we should think. If I do that, then I've really not served you. What I want to do is I want to just, I want to enter into this topic, talk about it, um, engage you, help you to think through uh, things maybe in a way that you're not, you're not experiencing in your common interactions over your news feed and interactions with people. Um, and so at least you have a chance to process it uh, in, in, in a fresh way. So that's kind of the goal today. Um, and so uh, we're gonna, um, let me just quickly pray. We're going to begin in Ephesians 4 because uh, I do want to give us a, a text that we can interact with over this so we're not just idea driving. This is going to feel like a lecture, and if you're like me, I always fell asleep at lectures after lunch in college, so feel free just to doze. Um, I would just find a way, what I would do is I would put my hand on my, like I was listening, and then I would just do this, and I could do an hour lecture just like this. So um, it affected my GPA, but it did work. Um, so let me pray. And then, uh, and then we'll kind of drop in, starting with uh, God's Word in Ephesians 4. Heavenly Father, thank you for this. Bless this food, Father, um, that it might nourish us, God, and uh, that we do thank you that you've provided it for us, God. I pray that uh, I thank you for this nourishment we've already received this morning, how deeply uh, we were cared for by you today through every aspect of meeting Rob's preaching. And Lord, I don't want to just move on from that. I don't want this to be something where people say, well, okay, whatever I was, whatever happened in Sunday this morning, I'm, I no longer think about. Lord, help us to, to we, we live by what, the, what happens preaching on Sunday mornings. This is a seminar. This is a chance to engage a topic. It is, it is not the preaching of the Word of God that we received this morning. And so I pray that you'd help us distinguish that. Father, it's a different mode. Help us to engage it that way. Um, help me, God, to communicate well. Uh, help us to hear well and to engage well in the Q&A. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So what you've gotten is a, an outline that has uh, some of the basic stuff that I'm talking about. I put enough in there um, to give you some sense of where we're going. I also included quotes in the back of it, the last couple of pages, are quotes. These are quotes on, uh, on um, critical race theory from a variety of places. Some people who are very prominent, who are, who are known in critical theory as being uh, proponents and people who, who are, who are well-respected. And there are also people from the Christian perspective who would disagree. Uh, your challenge today is to figure out which one is which um, as you read the quotes. But I use them because I'm going to reference some things in here, uh, in generalities, that, and, and you may have questions about them in our, uh, in our Q&A, but I'm not going to spend time unpacking these things that the quotes do the job for me. So they're there for you as well. Ephesians 4, you have in your outline. 
The Apostle Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This passage from Ephesians clarifies kind of our goal today. Paul calls upon the leaders of the church, specifically in our case, shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, to train the saints for our call as a church to become mature servants of Christ in the church and in the world. We're not telling you as Christians how to think about politics and culture. We are addressing the role of the church, God's gathered people set apart for his purpose in the world. This is the focus of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, and it's ours for covenant fellowship. This is the case for any time we engage cultural or political or social issues. We're not primarily trying to help, help you. This is how you need to think about these things. You'll certainly get that from us, but our goal, we, we wouldn't talk about these things except for the effect they have on the church and the church's mission in this world. There's a lot of things we're not going to talk about because they're really not uh, specifically the issues that we deal with as a church in our mission as a local church. So the focus of this teaching today is the same thing. We want to talk about it because it's relevant to who we are as a church. Embedded in Paul's instruction is that maturity in Christ includes the call to discern the influences around the church and within the church. Where is the church vulnerable to error? What is swirling around the church that we need to be careful of? Because, see, the, the church is not separate from the culture. The, the church is embedded in the culture. In fact, we who are in the church were drawn from the culture. We didn't plop down into this world as the church. We are gathered from the, the world into the church. And so we are, we are part and parcel of the world that we are uh, placed into as the church. Because the church is embedded in culture, the ideas and values and ways of that culture will always be intermingling with the church. Attempts over the course of church history to withdraw either into the cloister or into hyper-fundamentalism or into Quakerism or other ways that people have said, this is how we need to stay separate from the church, have never produced healthy church. It's always produced a church that has gone off the rails. There's something about what we're called to do because we have a great commission to live in the world for the sake of the gospel in the world that those who encounter us in our words and deeds and lives might come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are going to be intermingling with the world and its ideas. 
Our authenticity as a church requires us to understand and biblically discern cultural trends so that we're not carried along by them. And I would say this is especially as those trends and ideas intend to fit what we already think or feel. We are most susceptible to ideas that make most sense to us. Whether they come from the Bible or not. We are all susceptible to ideas that fit how we already think. I've said this before in a number of contexts. Studies show that, 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 that most of the time people go, going online looking for information are not going online looking for new information. They're going online to confirm biases they already have. To build up what they already think. They don't want to be challenged. We don't want to be challenged in what we think. We want to be, we want to be reminded that we're right. And so whatever we think about these topics, we've got to know that our, there's a tendency we have, a presupposition that we're right, and therefore we need to support what we think in our rightness. This passage can serve us well in that endeavor. It offers us three guiding principles for any cultural idea. Principles that can be applied to political ideas, economic ideas, artistic ideas, entertainment, social ideas, psychological ideas. Today we're going to apply them to the idea of critical race theory. And they are three ideas. One is we must understand the ideas in the culture that can shape the church. We must know enough about them to know what they really are. You can't, you can't address an idea you don't understand. You can't argue against something you don't understand. You can't accept something that you don't understand. So it's incumbent upon us to understand. That's the function of wisdom. Wisdom is seeking understanding. In the fear of the Lord but seeking understanding. So we must understand the ideas. Number two, we must assess these ideas in the culture as to how they might undermine the church. We have an assessment responsibility. As we understand something, we ask the question, so how could this affect us? What is the implication of this for our lives? How does this affect our mission? How could this split our church? How could this create division? How could this cause us to fall into error? Those are assessments we make on any idea, whether we agree with it or disagree with it. If it's not from the Bible, it needs assessment. And number three, we must respond to ideas in the culture that are, that's consistent in ways with our ultimate purpose. We can't just say, it's just too much. You're here because you're not in, content to say, well, ah, it's just not me. Ah, it's not my world. No, you know there's an, in, in, there's an intrinsic responsibility you have as a believer to respond. Where am I going to stand? What am I going to stand on? Quick side, Luther, uh, Martin Luther in, uh, at the Deed of Worms, um, where he is being tried uh, at, um, uh, by the Pope's, Pope's representative as to what do you believe. They're try- it's a heresy trial. And so they put the question to him, do you believe these things? Do you, he, oh, they put all his books out there, do you affirm what you've already written? And he's wrestling, he's wrestling, he says, can I have an overnight? So we, 
you know, the, there's a famous quote. He says, here I stand, I can do no other. That's a famous quote. We picture that quote being something where he just comes up and says, here I, can, I stand, I can do no other. That's not how it played out. What actually happened is he spent an evening in anguish and prayer saying, Lord, do I really believe this? Do I really stand on this? What do I really think? I've got to make a decision. They're calling me to make a decision about something. And so when he stands up the next day and says, here I stand, when he says, I can do no other, it's because he anguished over, was there something else he could do? And he came to the idea that as I've wrestled this down, my response is simply, I would love, he would have loved to have found a way to not have to take a stand on that issue. But he wrestled in himself and his soul to the ground. He said, here I stand. I can't do anything else but stand. With cultural ideas, we have to wrestle with them so that we can respond with a conviction, even if that conviction comes at great anguish and causes us to, to have to embrace implications of something that we have not, no idea how to, how to embrace. So, we must understand, we must assess, and we must respond. Number one, applying this critical race theory. Understanding critical race theory. Now, Paul is addressing this mixture of the church and the culture uh, throughout the book of Ephesians. Because he's addressing people, as he said in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, who followed the course of the world. Who were at one time alienated and far off from God's covenant. That's who he's writing to calling them to put off the old self and its ignorance and futility of thinking, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, and warns them to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. Chapter 5, 15. These are not people who've lived in a hole somewhere. They're living in the real world. Paul is counting on them to have some awareness and understanding of the ideas and the culture, but to, then from that to bring spiritual discernment and response to them as befitting mature faith. Now, so in related critical race theory, I'm going to try to give us a baseline start by offering a one-sentence summary of critical race theory. Otherwise, that's like asking someone to give you a one-sentence summary of the game of cricket. Have you ever gotten onto a weird channel on your, on your TV. I had a guy, I was, uh, I was in Australia, and I was doing a seminar uh, in Australia, and we were in a place, and back behind us was a cricket pitch. And so during the break, there was a guy there who was a cricket player, and I said, okay, we've got 25 minutes, explain this game to me. 25 minutes. He, he, well, you know, he showed me everything. I had no idea what he said. <laughs> I could not tell you how the game starts, how it ends, how long it should take, what direction the ball is supposed to go. I know nothing about it. 25 minutes was not long enough for him to explain cricket. One sentence is not long enough for me to explain critical race theory, but I'm going to give it a shot. So here's my, my farmer condensed definition of critical race theory. Critical race theory is the assessment that enduring racial injustice in our society is the result of the cultural majority instituting, perpetuating, and benefiting from economic, political, and social systems to the detriment 
of minority cultures. That's how I would define it. Now, most people who either advocate or reject CRT, they basically agree on that definition. That's a, that's a fairly well commonly understood way of describing critical race theory. What they argue over is that if that idea is an accurate diagnosis of enduring racial injustice, and if adopting that orientation is a good thing or not. That's the debate. The debate isn't over what it is, it's over whether it's accurate and whether it's worth pursuing. Now, I think if you're going to bring a thoughtful assessment of any idea to get understanding in the culture, you need an understanding of it and why it's influential. Now, there are a lot of ideas out in our culture that are pretty stupid. Now, people will still follow them, but then we say that's a pretty stupid person. This is not one of those ideas. There are some ideas that take hold because they speak to something people experience and offer a way to deal with it. CRT makes sense of some important things to a lot of people. I think, I'll be honest with you, I find that it has helped me in studying, at least to understand the perspectives of people who find it compelling. Some things I've learned from studying CRT, so engaging critical race theory helps me better understand the way minority peoples and cultures in our society have historically had to experience life. I've gotten insights into that struggle that I wouldn't have gotten had I not read about this. Engaging critical race theory helps me consider how, how things that have benefited me can work against other people. I can give you examples of that if you want. It, it, can help me, it helps me see with more objectivity how injustice functions in our systems. If you want examples of that, I'm happy to address that on the panel. Helps me wrestle concretely with the unearned but very real benefits of being a member of a majority culture. I can offer examples of that as well. Helps me resist the temptation to see sin and the, the sin of racism only in individual and overt terms. And studying critical race theory makes me uncomfortable being confident that my natural way of thinking is the best way of thinking. And I've learned that uncomfortable is good for my soul. I need to be uncomfortable on things in this culture. No matter where I've come from. Because it presses me to grow up in every way into Christ. If I am comfortable with the way I think about things and understand things, I have no real need to grow up, do I? I can just be how I am and be fine. But if I want to grow up into Christ, I need to be uncomfortable like, like you would. If you are in, in the sixth grade and you want to get a job as an engineer, you should be uncomfortable with your lack of understanding about engineering in the sixth grade. You should want to grow up. We need to embrace the uncomfortability of 
difficult ideas to force us. In every way, Paul says, includes how I think about myself and others in a sinful world. We're to grow up in every way into Christ. So I'm in a real sense very grateful for my personal experience engaging the ideas that critical race theory have put into the mainstream discussion. Now, this is huge. I'm going to make a massive pivot here. You came here to hear about critical race theory. I'm going to move the word race out of it. And I'm going to talk about critical theory. And you'll understand why when I do this. We'll deal with racial issues. But right now, what I'm going to tell you right now is not fundamentally about race. Critical theory. A little bit of background may be helpful. Now, I'm not, I'm not qualified to talk about academic theories. If you're an academic in this room, get prepared to just cringe as I totally flatten out your 15 years of scholarly work. When I talk about critical theory, like this, I'm talking about things that are generally understood in the mainstream, not purely in academia. But you have to deal a little bit with what's going on in academia to understand. First of all, critical theory. The philosophical basis for critical theory is a combination of existential and nihilist philosophy, Marxian political critique, and Freudian psychoanalytic theories that dominated academic circles in the middle of the 20th century. That's a mouthful. I realize that. I'm not asking you to take that down. How do you spell nihilist? I'm not asking you to do that. What I'm telling you is that there are ideas behind critical theory. That's why it's a theory. There are ideas, and those ideas come from a point in time and a cultural reference point. Um, this isn't the last five years where this come from. If you really want to understand critical theory, you need to start in the late 1800s, but then focus your attention on the middle of the 20th century and then scoot ahead to the 1970s before you can begin to look at it. But what we're saying is that a very simplified version of this mix, this, this um, existentialism and nihilism and Marxism and Freudianism, is that there are no moral absolutes. We construct our own realities. Social structures are inherently repressive. And liberation to personal expression is the highest human good. That's what we're talking about. That's the philosophical baseline for critical theory. Those are the tap roots of critical theory. We can unpack that. We're not going to. But, but, uh, but the idea that there are, no more, there are no moral absolutes, that we construct social constructs or how we live our lives, um, that structures are inherently repressive and that we need to be liberated on an entirely personal way to our complete fulfillment of how we want to live our lives. That's critical, that's the, that's the soil and the, and the taproot of critical theory. That agenda dominated philosophy. It was if you're in the if you're in the middle of the 20th century, that is philosophy. That's modernist philosophy is what we're talking about. Um, 
It was brought into the American legal studies tradition in the 1970s as a way to analyze what, why civil rights legislation was not producing the social and economic change it was tended, tended to produce. So historically, there were these significant responses to, to, uh, to, to the historic racial issues that our country faced through, um, through legislation. And laws were passed and things were changed but then what they found is that they weren't producing change. And so, so academics began to say, legal scholars, this is not philosophers at this point, this is legal scholars are saying, why is this not working? Why, why, you know, why did uh, Brown versus, versus Board of Education not really deliver us? Why did the, 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 the New Deal not deliver us? Why did, um, why did Johnson's policies not deliver us into a new era? And so as they're searching around to answer that question, in, in, in the law departments, not the philosophy departments, they, they pull this idea of critical theory and say, it may have to do with the structures that, are, that, that the laws aren't reaching, that the laws aren't affecting. And so that's where you get the idea of critical race theory. It's not philosophy. It's legal theory in the 1970s. So, that's important because it developed in debate on legal theory, not as cultural theory. But in the 80s and 90s, very, various critical theories emerged alongside critical race theory. So there's critical feminist theory, there's critical gender theory, and others. It's the same basic philosophical framework, but applied to different perceived systems of inequality or injustice. I know this is pretty deep. Hopefully we'll get past this. You'll at least have a frame of reference. In the past couple of decades, this matrix of critical theories has become the dominant view in academic cultural studies programs. So if you're in a cultural studies program, in most, uh, certainly most secular universities and colleges, this is what you get. You get critical theory as the basis for understanding culture. Um, there's no real debate on that. Uh, as it's moved into popular forms, now here's the interesting thing, and this is the, this is the thing you have to connect. Critical race, race theory has been intentionally selected as the overall umbrella term for all these various critical theories that are out there. The other critical theories said, how are we going to get cultural relevance? How are we going to get social stature? And, and, and this is, that you, you go back and read the journal articles through this period. You read the authors. You read the people who are writing on this. This is an intentional political agenda. We need to attach, whether it's gender or feminism, whatever it is, we need to attach it to the race struggle in this country, which is 250 years old, and, and we need to say this is our problem as well. And so what you have is you have, when you talk about race now, you're not simply talking about race. You're talking about a whole matrix of ideas that have been funneled into what is called critical race theory. Very important. If you're on a college campus right now, you will you probably see this at work. Why am I why did we start talking about race and now we're talking about gender? Why did that happen? How did how did sexuality come into this? Because that's the goal. That's the political goal. 
That's the, that's the philosophical goal. So that's why it creates a lot of confusion for many people. All perceived inequalities in this approach have equal claim with the long-standing issue of racism and the battle for civil rights. Our culture, wherever we've gotten to, we've seen the battle for civil rights as a noble, a noble struggle. So let's attach that noble struggle to my particular sense of, 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 of repression. What do I feel like I've, I don't get? Well, it, it's the same thing as, as, as slavery. What, what, you're, what you're depriving me is the same thing as what you were depriving the slaves of. What Jim Crow did. This is just modern Jim Crow. This is just modern segregation. That's the language you get. Very important. That's why we have to take, take before we put race back into it, we have to separate it out and recognize it's a bigger picture. And when we talk about critical race theory, particularly certainly academically, we're talking about something that is not just about race. It's about everything else that happens to be considered a repression. So what has developed over the decades and is now in play is about far more than race and ethnicity. In my opinion, the intensity of the debate over critical race theory in our country is because there are cultural issues far broader than race in play. And both sides of the debate know it. Those who are advocates for critical race theory in this broad way, that is the way it's understood, recognize our particular uh, repressions only carry weight if we can t attach them to race. So, so that's why you must, you must see this as, as the same as race. Those who are concerned about this in our culture recognize, for example, in schools, there's a lot more getting funneled into conversations about race in schools than simply race. There's a lot of agenda following in on that. That's why it's a cultural battleground. Everybody sees that. Both sides know that. There is a battle. It's a pitted battle because the agendas are much bigger than what you would say when you simply said this is critical race theory. Um, it's one of the reasons, for example, you'll find it's very hard to start a conversation with someone on critical race theory and keep it on the issue of race and ethnicity. Very hard. Because, because it, is, it has been created as a matrix of issues under the umbrella of race. That's why, for example, we can talk more about this, whiteness is not simply a color. Whiteness, you can be black and be white if you are not also pro-LGBT. You must have all that in place to be black um, in, in this system. We need to understand that. That's what we need to understand. So what I try to do in understanding, I try to say there are things about this that is helpful for us to know because it helps us understand the experience of people who have 
not been part of majority culture and who've experienced things in the systems that they can't resolve. We need to understand it. We also need to understand there's far more going on politically than simply a conversation about race. So we need to assess, number two. Assess it as it relates to the church. Where it goes in the culture, we have no control over. What happens in the church is important. Why must we assess critical, critical theory or any other cultural idea? Paul tells us what happens if we don't. If we don't, we're in danger of being, according to verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The word picture here is a boat on the sea. Waves of controversy pushing the church in all different directions. The winds of unbiblical ideas threatening to blow us off course. Note that Paul attaches intent to these ideas. These, these ideas come from somewhere. They are cunning, they are crafty, and they are deceitful. Certainly as it relates to the, the truth of God, we've already seen that, that critical theory is anti-God. And so it is by definition deceitful because it moves people away from seeing themselves as people before God to seeing themselves as their own moral agents. We have an agenda that's set up against the truth of God. Paul has a limited scope of concern here. It's our job to debate every crazy idea in the culture. But only as those ideas threaten to create turmoil in the church or divert its mission do they require our discerning attention. Our primary concern is not the state of our culture or our country. That matters to us, but it's not our primary focus. When we make culture the, our primary focus, we actually sail right out into the winds of error. We can't control where the culture goes, and we certainly can't make it go where we want it to go. It's because of this confusion in the church that critical theory qualifies, in my mind, for Paul's test of every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I've already given you a little bit of my thinking on that by saying it's much more going on here than race when we talk about critical race theory. Here's how I would apply the test of does this pass the test? Is it, is it a wind that will blow us off course? Is it designed in human cunning? Is it crafted? In other words, it's sophisticated. And does it deceive? Does it take us away from truth? First, critical theory is founded upon a worldview that must deny the existence of God. The trinity of critical theory, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud were materialists. They had no place for a transcendent God or authentic human faith, and they were opposed to religion, particularly Christianity. Uh, I've got quotes in there from all three of them. You can get an idea of their attitudes. That's not cherry-picked quotes. That's a considerable amount of what they wrote about. They took on religion continually and constantly. The ultimate goal of critical theory is human flourishing in explicit denial of our identity as image bearers of God. There is simply no way to link critical theory and Christian worldview. They are antithetical. They live entirely apart in two different ways of understanding existence. The attempt to Christianize critical theory has always resulted in deconstruction of the Christian faith. 
And sadly, you see that both in denominations and organizations, but you see it in individuals. Once I begin to embrace the ideas of critical theory, not that there aren't legitimate ideas in critical theory, I must embrace the underlying reality that there is no God. And in fact, God and the concept of God is oppressive in itself. That's where you will always end up. So that's one reason we must reject it. Second, critical theory is a political commitment and it's inherently revolutionary. Marxist ideology, that's a, that was my major in college, is Marxism, of every kind has focused understandably on injustices and, impression, uh, and oppression, often with mar remarkable insight. You read Marx and you get great insights into how things go. But the remedy is always the same. You must overthrow the power structures. That's all Marx knows, is the overthrow of power structures. That's what critical theory has in mind as well. Critical theory unleashes the alienation, I'm using Marxist language now, the alienation of, of, of the oppressed in self-justified revolutionary power. So that's what happens. You release people to, to, who are repressed and oppressed into revolutionary mode but then, somehow, once they've accomplished the revolution, they're supposed to set up a just and equitable society. That's always been the problem with Marxism. It overthrows things, but it's never been able to create the utopia that it, intended, that it thought would happen. Why? Because it thought, by, by throwing off the, the structures, people would flourish and govern themselves equitably. That dog don't hunt. <laughs> we know it because of sin. We, we know it. That's how I came to Christ, is realizing this don't work. This don't work. I've got all the privileges. I've got everything I need, and I'm still an evil person who is looking to take advantage wherever I can of whatever I can. That is life. That is who we are. That's what we've been across cultures. It's not a Western phenomenon. It is the way things are. That's why Marxism has, has done a phenomenal job of overthrowing bad governments and replacing them sometimes with worse governments. Because the, you know, as Pete Townsend said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You can't do that. You can't create an identity as a revolutionary and then become an, become an equitable and give back power that you just took. In order to have a just society, an equitable society, there's a shared power. You can't take a power, the power from the oppressors, remove it, and then give them some back. Because they are still oppressors in your mind. So, um, critical theory follows the same trajectory. It tears down and leaves the building up to chance. In fact, if you read, there's a couple of quotes I was looking back on today and I was thinking, okay, what would you say is the answer? You've, 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 you've showed the problem, the, the quotes that you have in there. They don't have an answer. You never get to an answer when you read critical theory. You get to the problem and you get to what needs to be taking place. And the best they tend to come up with is this is how we can do this tearing down well. This is how it can be done efficiently. There's no building up. There's no, there's no other idea out there. That's, another, that's a second reason. It's, 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 it's revolutionary. 
It is not redemptive. The essence of the gospel is redemption. Those who, who hate and are being hated have been redeemed. And they, and, and they come in peace. And they seek shalom. The flourishing for all people. There's no shalom in critical theory. Third, popular critical theory creates its own form of oppression. There's a re re retributive aspect to, to critical theory as it's applied in our culture. According to critical theory, those who've been legitimately oppressed have the moral right to, to oppress. If you've been oppressed, you have the moral right. In fact, some would say the obligation. If you do not oppress, if you do not get back at those who are your oppressors, then you are simply a part of the bad system and you need to be oppressed. If I can claim to have been repressed and I don't just have the right to speak, I have the right to silence those who've not let me be heard. And the more ways I've been repressed, the more rights I have to be heard, and the stronger my right to judge and cancel anyone who has oppressed me. This is the ethical implication of what is called intersectionality, which I have a quote in there about that, and if you want to read that. Um, in the world of intersectionality, there's an absolute right to silence any voice that is judged as repressive. This is not me overstating. This is not me reacting. This is in the literature, constantly. It is where you get the idea of anti-racism. Ibram Kendi has, has uh, uh, his book on, on the history of racism is a compelling read. It, it is, I found it very insightful, particularly on our founding era. But his politics and his introduction of the idea of anti-racism means there's only two camps. You're either anti-racist or you're racist. And guess who gets to define who is anti-racist or racist? You can't claim to be not racist. You can't even... If you don't fit this criteria of anti-racism, which is created from within the critical theory uh, academia, then you are by definition racist. There is no in-between. There's no process of moving from one to the other. You are or you aren't. That's what happens, and that's what intersectionality produces. The literature is explicit that this is a justifiable and often necessary tactic in the name of overturning hegemony, which is basically domination of one view over others. Popular critical theory, for example, practices oppression in the, names, in the name of oppression. A couple examples. There's no room in the world of critical theory for a conservative African American. Why? Because you don't line up on the other issues that you must line up on. And there's no room for a Hispanic or Latino who is also a Catholic because you accept God and you must reject God to fit. 
So a a an uh, an immigrant Latino woman would have a at least a triple intersectionality. But if she's Catholic, that's all canceled out. And she is an oppressor. That's the way critical theory functions. On the basis of this assessment, above I believe that the health and mission of the church, I think you know where I'm going, requires a full rejection of the ideas and approaches of critical theory as, as it relates to race, gender, or any other concern in the culture as we seek to bring the hope of the gospel. We cannot be a church that finds a place in our thinking about, about these things to smuggle in or bring in critical theory in any form. It's antithetical to biblical thinking. I also believe this kind of biblical assessment should be brought to any idea. What I've just done, I've tried to show you carefully looking at it, letting the people who advocate it define the terms for themselves. Don't just listen to somebody you already agree with and how they think about it, but actually engage the people who you disagree, engage the people who are known on that side to represent it well. What do they say? How do they say that? I think that should be done to anything that you're looking at. If you don't do that, if you simply find somebody you like and use their ideas, I don't think you're doing, first of all, I don't think you're doing very responsible moral thinking. Second of all, I don't think you're doing what Paul is calling to us to in Ephesians 4. We, our biblical assessment needs to be brought to any idea blowing around us that might draw us away from our primary concern. We live in a culture divided by worldviews and ideas, rejecting one cultural view does not mean we must accept its opposite. We're tossed about because winds and waves come in all directions, specifically to use current idioms. If you're assuming that what I've done is rejected wokeism, don't be misled into think I'm advocating anti-wokeness. Whatever either one of those unhelpful terms really means needs to be evaluated based on God's word. The truth is, eliminating critical theory in race conversations, it doesn't eliminate the problem of racial injustice and historic racism and its present manifestations in the culture and sometimes in the church. You can't simply reject the idea as live as if the problem has been solved. You must now think, how do we deal with the problem? So that's how we respond. Number three. Responding to critical theory as the church. If, if error does threaten to destabilize the church, Paul offers a remedy. What you might think, you expect him to say, okay, we have all these winds of doctrine. We need to stand against these ideas. We need to build arguments against them. We need to eradicate them where we see them. And certainly we need to develop apologetics. That's true. But that's not his primary way of dealing with things. In verse 15, he says, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is he saying? What is he saying is that, no, we don't go on the attack. We do what we're called to do. And we let that speak for ourselves. We are who we are. We grow in as a body. We, as a body, display 
in righteousness what the world does in craziness. I know there's some Christians who've been enticed by critical theory and are being tossed and around confused by it. I think, uh, historically, I don't think that's been as big an issue in our church. My concern is that we don't sufficiently apply Paul's methodology for addressing potential error coming from any direction. Paul uses the word beginning in verse 5 is crucial. He says, rather, it directly ties our response. There's a way that you, that, that you will go, but rather go this way. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. That is a collective experience. As we all speak the truth in love, we are all to grow together. Paul's not giving us permission to say anything we want as long as we think we're right and another person's wrong. What he is saying is that the love of Christ is so compelling in us that how we live and how we speak in any context should reflect who Jesus is and what he would have us do and say. If we live this way, we mature out of childish worldly ways into a maturity that builds the church and promotes its work in a sin-sick world. Sadly, I think we're overly prone to childishness. That's Paul's word in verse 14 in the church. We childishly allow error to drive us. I don't speak for to anybody in this room, or even that it applies to anybody in this room, but I think in the church, you only have to read what's going on to say this, there's a lot of childishness, as, as Paul defines childishness. We, we childishly allow error to drive us, but we also respond to what we see as wrong with childish name-calling. I'm grieved when I see Christians and sadly often Christian leaders slapping pejorative labels on anything in race conversations that to them smells of critical theory. Labels like, well, that's just woke, or that's just wokeism, or that's CRT are convenient and I would say childish ways to broadly diss and dismiss any perspective another person brings that doesn't line up with what we already think. It's simple to say that's just woke. It's simple as that's just CRT. It means nothing. It has no value. But it's a way to dismiss somebody quite easily. And sadly, I think the same happens the other way. When labels like far right or implicit racist come from the other direction. We cancel each other that way. Church, we must not do that. We must do better. When a brother or sister, bring it home a little bit, brings up an experience they've had with systemic equality as they define it, as they talk about it, or injustice, you may feel like you want to shut that down. Maybe you come from a place where I don't, I don't buy into the whole systemic injustice thing. Well, okay, that may be what you think. Why don't you just listen and engage what they've experienced and then decide whether you're accurate or not. When a brother or sister wants to bring up progress that's been made in, on racial equality, that's not the time to hit the cancel button and say, well, you clearly don't understand what you're talking about. It's an opportunity to press in on both, to press in, to speak the truth of love, which really, the literal, what Paul's literally saying there is literally to act 
on truth by love. Speaking the truth in love is not me being loving as I, as I tear you down. Speaking the truth in love is mean, what is the truth here and how can we have conversation over it in a loving way? The ultimate goal is not purging error, but being joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that we build ourselves up in love. That's the best resilience against the storms of error. I'm going to kind of turn the corner here, close with a, with a, with a parable, a recent parable. Back in 2023, bro country artist Luke Combs recorded a song called Fast Car. You may probably know this. Fast Car is a song that was recorded about 37 years ago, written and recorded by an uh, African-American female artist, Tracy Chapman. The song was a, uh, was, was a significant song for her, won the Grammy for Song of the Year. Uh, it's become generally considered in the 20th century one of the, one of the top 20 greatest folk songs of the 20th century. Luke Combs, modern, you know, country boy, would do the song occasionally in his concerts, and he said, you know, I want to record it. So what does he do? It's this song is about a young, poor black woman trying to get out of poverty and start a life for herself. What does he do? He doesn't change a single word. And he records it almost note for note. And the song comes out and it becomes a massive hit. Country radio. First time any African-American female has had a number one song in country music. Now, it got controversial. On the left... You heard things like, this is cultural appropriation. He's taking her art and he's making money on it. And the only reason he's making money is because he's a white male. It also got critique from the right. You said, how could this red-blood American man do a song written by a woman who is known for her liberal politics. And they wanted to bait them into this argument. But here's the amazing thing. Neither one of them took the bait. Tracy Chapman, tremendous, gracious response. She said, I never expected to find myself on the country charts. But I'm honored to be there. I'm happy for Luke and his success and grateful that new fans have found and embraced Fast Car. A few weeks ago, at the Grammys, they performed the song. You can check it out on YouTube. Um, it was, it, it's become sort of a phenomenon because it, it spoke to people. And what you see in the video, you see... It's his song. He's the one who's made it famous. People don't really know who she is at this point. She's been sort of reclusive. He let her sing it. He let her play it. He just stood there 
at a mic and sang some background. It was her song. He gave it back to her in that moment. And um, he said, after the Grammys, Tracy, I want to send my sincerest thanks to you for allowing me to part, be a part of your moment. Thank you for the impact you have had on my musical journey and the musical journeys of countless other singers, songwriters, musicians, and fans alike. I hope you felt how much you mean to the world that night. We were all in awe of you up there. And I was just the guy lucky enough to have the best seat in the house. Now, a lot of the world stops and says, what just happened? Well, what just happened is people got a glimpse. It's, it's, a, it's a frying pan glimpse. It's and it won't last. But they got a glimpse when you do something besides just talk about power and oppression and right and wrong. When you actually do, in a common grace way, what we know needs to be done. You extend grace. You resist the temptation to buy into narratives that destroy peace. And you, you instead, you, you extend grace when people are saying you need to bring judgment. And you extend humility. You humble yourself. Tracy Chapman just, it was just a picture of grace. Luke Combs, just a picture of humility. I, I have no right to claim anything in this. I just turned her song back into the world. And I don't want to live as if it's mine. It was hers. It's still hers. Brothers and sisters, our world is desperate for that. To see it somewhere. Which is why it pains me so much when, when they look to the church, they see the church looking like the world. This is what, no, this is it, this is it. Squaring off social media, contentious argument, not listening, not extending grace, not believing that maybe this person has something you can contribute to me, not believing that maybe this person really does want to learn and understand. There's another way, and I'll close here. Jesus gave it to people, Matthew 5. A people who were oppressed, a people who had, were living under the oppressive thumb of a dictator, people who, who in their own land were the poor among the poor, people who had, had, no, had, had no hope for any resolution, people who had been crushed repeatedly. And he came to them, and in his first major sermon to them, he walked up on a big hill and he said, okay, what do I want you to know? And among the things he said, he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil 
against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, that's our answer to CRT. That's our answer to critical theory. We don't live according to the world. There is a God in heaven. And he has come and made himself known to us. And we live for his glory. Amen. You want this? I think so, because you two need to share this. In just a few minutes, I'm going to ask some questions of these guys, and then I'm going to open the floor to y'all to ask some questions. We'll try to do that for about 25, 30 minutes, and then we'll let you go. I I got a big mouth. I know y'all can hear me. (laughs) We're trying to record this for posterity. Um... Is it clear to you why I wanted Andy be, to be the one to address this topic? Oh, come on. AJ, thanks for serving us. Uh, and in this, in this panel, I also wanted you to, get to hear from Jared Torrance. Uh, Jared has put a lot of thought into this topic as well, and together with Andy, they provide leadership to our ethnic harmony ministry. Uh, and so, inevitably, these... Yeah, go ahead. You can clap for Jared Torrance. Go ahead. That's good. <laughs> um, we, uh, hang on, I want to freeze this. Invariably, a uh, panel on this topic is going to go beyond the limited bounds of critical race theory into some other topics. So hopefully we'll get a chance to cover them all. And if you don't get to ask your question to, today just because of time, you can feel free to hang afterwards or to just shoot us an email. We're happy to engage on this. Okay, boy, I've got so many notes. I'm, I'm just, I've, I've got four things planned. We'll see how the first one goes. Uh, and then I'll kick it open to the floor. Uh, let's see. Andy, you mentioned probably it, uh, after your introduction when you were talking about some things, maybe why critical race theory has gained traction. You had mentioned that CRT captures a person's experience in some very valid ways. Like it, it, it resonates with something, and that's why it has caught on. Um, what might either of you say it actually resonates with that we shouldn't throw that baby out with the bathwater? They don't have the questions ahead of time. They're hearing them as you're hearing them. Okay, so the, la- the last part is what... What about CRT and the experiences? Yes. Do are we not just saying blah blah? Right, right, right. Yes, yes. Um, That's exactly how I put it. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, listen, I, I I would say that there there is a helpfulness in recognizing that your particular story and your particular life is not going to be everyone's same experience, right? So, quick story. Okay, so uh, like five years ago, we were at a conference kind of around this topic, and um, there was a white pastor sitting next to me, and there was a black pastor who was an author uh, at the table as well, and Andy was there as well. And uh, there's a couple other brothers there too. And we're all talking in different things, and and sharing kind of our experiences and, you know, a lot of uh, 
the minority brothers' experience were kind of lining up, and then um, the white pastor to my left, he was like, you know what is really hard for me about these things? Um, and this is a guy who's all in on the multi-ethnic church. Like, this dude's, like, killing it. He would say, whenever I go to a conference like this, um, everything I say is pretty much dismissed until they find out I'm a co-pastor with the author over here. Then all of a sudden I say the exact same thing and all of a sudden they're pearls of wisdom. And I was like, ooh-wee. So I, I think, I think it, it goes in so many different ways of just helping us understand the importance of uh, the uniqueness of the stories that God has written for all of us. And um, the fact that a lot of us do have a shared experience that can help us give categories for how to relate to one another. Right. Um, because what happens is we experience something and then that colors the way we respond to different scenarios going forward in our lives, right? So um, I'm, I'm pretty positive I can say every person of color in this room, or at least every black person, African-American, um, has at some point been called the N-word. And every point, every one of us can remember the first time we were called the N-word and how that shaped us moving forward. Because it's the first time you experience, okay, in this context, I am other. And you start to question for the first time, is that a bad thing? So you're ostracized, you're aware of your differences in a negative light, and now you're moving forward trying to adjust and adapt in a world where, you, where a lot of us are interacting with a lot of majority folk, having to fight against that experience I just had and having to remember the truth of the Imago Dei, that I'm made in the image of God, right? And I have dignity and worth, not because of the color of my skin, but because I, was, I, I came from the dust and I was formed and God breathed life into me, right? But a lot, I'll, and I, if you can see up here, all the black people are nodding their head, remembering the first time that horrible word was used for them, right? So that's a shared experience that helps me know how to interact with other people, mm -hmm. right? This isn't just, and, and when it's that personal, this conversation is not just intellectual. It, it touches on my experience. It, it, it makes a passing comment that you may think, oh, that shouldn't really matter. All of a sudden, it's pulling on different memories from my life of how I felt other and how mm -hmm. I'm fighting against that otherness and wanting to be one with everyone here. Wanting to celebrate those differences. Um, so that would be my, my intro thoughts. Good. Okay. How would you respond, guys, to someone who just assumes all focus on race must be driven by critical race theory? That if, if, if we have an ethnic harmony ministry, a covenant fellowship, we're, we're giving way to critical theory. I'll start briefly and then I'm going to hand it to you. One, I would say that's, one, I would say respond graciously is what we have to do. Because that's not a completely wild idea, right? If, the, if, if we wanted critical race theory to come into the church, what better Trojan horse would we use than the reality of the topic that is in the word of God and then sneak in this other nonsense? But in God's kindness, we are not trying to sneak critical race theory into the church. What we're actually trying to do is separate the reality of the way God himself talks about 
ethnic harmony and ethnic unity and multicultural, the church coming together and worshiping the lamb who was on the throne. And we wanted to educate our people on that and separate it from the worldly critical race theory that is out there. So I would say, no, 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 there's actually a difference. And we have to help one another separate political jargon talk and biblical talk. That's what good. I, I think, yeah, that, you know, I think what I'm hearing you say is that we can't just talk against something. Mm-hmm. We need to advocate for something. We need to advocate for something that's biblical. And we have in this, in this issue, this realm of issues, uh, plenty in the Bible to talk about, which mm-hmm. is the purpose of what we're doing in, in uh, ethnic harmony, is, is just let's, let's focus on what God does say and how God does want us to, to, to go. I think... Um, I think also it's a historically uh, truncated perspective to say any conversation about race is going to involve critical race theory. I've tried to help you see that there's a lot of things where critical race theory comes up that has nothing to do with race. But at the same time, uh, it's always been the church who has generally at the forefront of dealing with issues of racial injustice from abolition onward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that church always did well. It doesn't mean the church didn't always did, didn't did, there weren't segments of the church who actually advocated for racist things. But you can't simply say, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation except for CRT because they were having it in the 1700s. <laughs> They're having it in the 1800s. They're having it in the 20th century. Um, it's 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 part of us wrestling with how do the scriptures speak to mm-hmm. us to live out this biblical concept of justice which is not a simple thing. Mm-hmm. You can never say justice is blank. Justice is this or this. The Bible's righteousness, justice, holiness matrix, uh, it's, it's, it, those terms flow back and forth and they make up a huge part of the ethical implications we have yeah, as good. believers. Good. good. Along the same lines, just respond to the objection that doesn't all this focus on race in the church just create more division? in the church. It can. <laughs> We're trying not to do that. And you're here because I don't think you want that. I don't think you want to take this and go out and say, well, let me just find out who's... I'm gonna, you know, yeah. You're here because you want to be able to talk about these things mm-hmm. in a non-divisive way. Amen. In a way where you grow. In a way where you where the end result is fellowship. You know, some of my sweetest fellowship experiences have, have started with hard conversations about race. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't know the terms. I didn't know how to... I, when I was saying, I didn't know whether I was, I was tripping somebody up, I was stumbling somebody, whether my questions were, were you know, and, 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 and my brother or sister who was coming from the other place would say, yeah, I don't... When I hear you say things, I have to, I have to kill my... My first response is to say, that's just him thinking this. So the, it's, it's exhausting work. Mm. It doesn't need to be divisive work. Yeah, good. But it is hard. Good. Yeah, I would just say um, differences don't have to lead to division. Amen. So differences in thought, differences in experiences, differences in interpretation, right? We are a people who want to hold high the word of God, Amen. right? We, that's our ultimate authority. The, the, cool, the really cool thing about all these conversations, no matter how messy they get, is that we like actually do have moral absolutes in God's word. That's right. Like, so we're not like, 
we, we're, we're going to try and come down on something and try to interpret this rightly, but there is actually like right and wrong, and like God knows that. And at one point, we are all going to realize together when we're singing our heads off in the new heavens and the new earth that like, oh yeah, God like had a really good plan the whole time. And I don't think we'll be having like debates about these things in the new heavens and the new earth. So um, I'm saying all that to make sure. Okay, I'm saying all that. We're out of the conference over here, yeah. (laughs) I'm saying all that to make sure that when we enter these types of conversations, Christians do not need to be fearful, right? Like, it's it's like a lot of talking here is like, I mean, I don't care. It's a lot of talk out here is like, Disney's doing this and blah, 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 and they're coming after our kids. And it's like, okay, that's fine. In your home, keep the word of God central. Raise them up in the way that yeah, they should yeah, go. Yeah. Right? Like, we have God's holy and authoritative word. You know, the kids are out in college. They're coming at us. I said, okay, have conversations with your college students. Instill in them a, a love for the word of God. Pray for them. Oh, my goodness. If we are not on our knees regarding how the culture is coming against all the things of Christianity, then what in the world are we doing? And we're not on our knees praying to God while being completely fearful of the world. We're doing this in a confidence that God is going to do what? He's going to build his church. He's going to give us wisdom. That's what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it and God will give it. So like one thing I do want us to all walk away from from this conversation is a lack of fear and a bolstering of confidence in our God who loves to build his church. And in that, we can approach the topics of critical race theory. We can approach the topics of ethnic harmony. We can approach all these difficult topics knowing that God is uniting us. The the same spirit lives inside of all of us, and it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. I'm sorry, I keep bringing up Christ and the gospel, but that's because that's what we're about, right? And and so so here's, here's the reality. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside of all of us, and he wants to help us glorify the Son. So we don't need to be timid and fearful that if we talk about these things, all of a sudden the unity is gone in the church. Absolutely not. That's right. We talk about this with confidence, not in our own intellect or our own thought, but we don't want to be tossed to and fro because we, together, want to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. Amen. Amen. Wow. Amen. Yes. All right, have a good day, everybody. One more quick shameless plug. That's why one of the things we're doing is we're doing book studies. Uh, it's not just, okay, we're trying to get information. We're, we're using books to help us learn how to talk. Yeah. You know, how do, we, how do I ask this question? I got this question that seems like an awkward thing to ask. How do I ask it? How do I respond to that question where I think, okay, you know, I can check out right now. And so just the, it's the, the book studies, and those who've been in them, it's just we're trying to figure out common language. You know, we're trying to grow so that we can talk about these things which are real in our lives. So we, we know we'll be, we'll be having what's in the future, and we'd love to have you check it out. We just we, we, we pull a book, we talk, talk about it, and, you know. And we fix the world. <laughs> All right, let me ask this last question. That's a good transition to my last question. Uh, the books, the book idea. Uh, are there any voices on this issue that you entirely endorse? And assuming the answer to that is no, what are some helpful voices, Christian voices, that if people wanted to take a next step after this, you could point them in that direction? Other than scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bible's a good one. 
I do have one of you that's yeah. Um, uh, on a serious note, um, outside of the Apostle Paul, um, there's a ministry called United We Pray, um, led by Isaac Adams, who's down in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, the only reason I'm not giving a full endorsement of everything is just because I feel like I shouldn't do that. Um, but everything <laughs> I've read from there has been helpful um, because their, their aims are to keep people praying about this issue, right? They want to create resources that are, that are hopeful, uh, that are true and that help Christians come together around uh, racial struggles in the church. Um, I've written a few articles for them. Uh, they've posted one of our sermons on, on their website, United, question, or U, question mark, wepray.com. So you, we pray. There's no question mark in it. You, we pray.com. Uh, United, question mark, we pray is, is that resource. And they have a ton of different things. And it's a good way to get introduced to um, other people who are thinking um, along the lines of how your, your elders are thinking uh, regarding this topic. And of course, a killer podcast. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fit. The guys are unbelievably sharp. Winsome. Their guests are sharp. Yeah, guests are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things we're doing, just to let you know, if you haven't checked it out, it's, it's a podcast we do uh, that don't fit. But one of the things we're doing, we're going through and we're interviewing uh, members of our church on this issue, too, just talking about... Uh, we, uh, uh, we just had Nathan and, and Catherine Jen just come and give in different perspectives. Um, and we're kind of work through the church and get people in there. Just you know, Here's my experience. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've grown. So, yeah. so before opening the floor, I was going to endorse it and encourage you to check out that Don't Fit. But thankfully, Andy has self-promoted that already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great podcast. Uh, very helpful. Uh, and sometimes even entertaining. <laughs> Um, what Andy was whispering to me earlier, he wanted to make sure that as I open the floor, you feel a category you could ask about is anything he said that really confused you. Uh, if you want further clarity on something he said, feel free to include that in the questions. But let me open the floor for 15 minutes or so here and just see if y'all have any questions. I'm going to ask you, try to keep your, your, your question short on the short side so we can leave room for, for others to ask. Okay, anybody? I, yeah, I gave, a, I gave a bunch of those examples. I think I said I gave examples of how certain things, what was it? Uh, I thought you said you would give more examples. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, let me repeat the question. That's fine. That's fine. All right. You don't have any more. That's okay. Uh, just, I think it was more, I, if you want examples for, uh, of uh, systemic injustice or, uh, or majority benefits, those are the kind of things. Go ahead. Give a couple. Okay. Okay. So if 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 we end today and Honey's not happy, it's a bad day. So one of my one of my favorite examples of systemic injustice is the tax code um, and the IRS. Like, who here thinks that the uh, the tax code is just? Yes. <laughs> Any accountants yeah. among us? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's not, you know, there's no such thing as systemic injustice. Well, just, if you think the tax code is unjust, that's a system. And it produced, whatever good intent was there, and I always tend to think the government at some point, somebody there has a good intent. 
And so they pass laws with the idea they're going to fix something or create something, and it doesn't work out the way it meant to, and it doesn't answer the problem. Um, so the tax code is one where if you say, I have struggled with, with systemic injustice, just talk about the tax code. Um, one, I think the other example I had was majority benefit. People can struggle with the fact that, okay, what do you mean by, you know, you're in the majority. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white male Protestant. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm top majority in terms of the social structures, typically. As I get older, I'm going to slide down. Um, but, uh, but so how, what do you mean? Well, I, I love the example. My, my high school, uh, it was a five-year high school, so you went in from seventh grade into, into eighth grade in high school. And uh, my, my grammar school was on the fringe of the high school drawing area. So there were two major grammar schools that fed the high school, um, uh, All Good Elementary and Jolly Elementary. And Indian Creek did too. So, so we maybe had, you know, my class actually split between two, two, two high schools. So when I went into that high school, one of the things I, I became very aware of very quickly is that all the teachers know all the All Good and Jolly students. And all the coaches know all the all good and jolly students. So if I'm going to go out for a sport, there are guys who are already known by the coaches who are going to get first shots at everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get a first shot because I'm in the minority. I'm from Dunair. Now, you know, there's nothing different about us but the fact that, that the majority was known and the majority, and, and they were all first name basis and, 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 and the, the teachers had their kids going to these schools so they knew each other. That's all we're talking about. When you are in a position in, a, in any, any situation where you just tend to be the default, that's a majority status, even if you're a minority in numbers. That's all we're talking about. And so we should be able to say, yeah, in certain situations, I'm a dad in my home. I'm the majority guy, right? Um, if I decide not to give my kids food because they didn't earn it themselves, that's me, you know, being that kind. So, so I just like to diffuse the idea that when we talk about these things, there's some kind of a CRT thing. It's just life. And what CRT does is it explains things in a way that is very selective in terms of what it allows and what it doesn't allow. Mm -hmm. But the realities are familiar to people. Yeah. So. Just one quick thing on that. Um, when we think of systemic injustices, I think a helpful category for me in thinking through it is not like the system is inherently unjust and there's nothing we can do about it. I think a helpful way to think about it is there's systems that are in place and then we have to remember our doctrine of sin and our fallenness and our wickedness and our complete hatred of all things holy. Then you put those people in charge of running those systems. And then what happens, right? right. Even things that are fully, wholly, intentionally good get corrupted because guess what? We're really good at sinning. We're really, really good at it. If you look up our statement of faith or open up our statement of faith and you read the doctrine of sin, you read through that and you say, okay, let's put these people in places of power and have them create systems. What's going to happen? It just makes sense. So again, theology is really, really helpful. When we think of ethical things, when we think of morality, don't leave theology to the side. Actually bring it really close and keep it right next to you as you think through these things because we are theologically minded people, right? 
If God is our ultimate authority, we have to keep the thoughts of God and what he's revealed to us close to us as we think these issues. Good. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Because the Catholic Church is oppressive, and God is oppressed. The concept of God is oppressive. You're speaking from the perspective oh. of critical theory. Yeah, yeah, yes. yes. critical theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not my own, it's not my own opinion. Yeah, yeah. So what? What? The way it works out is, is anything that has moral absolute, which the Catholic Church is about moral absolutes, uh, in, in in its doctrine. Um, if you are Catholic, that means you are. You are, you know, anti-pro-choice. That means you are probably anti-gay marriage. It means you, you have a view of, of gender that is male and female. It's binary. All those things deny you the right to call yourself oppressed because the politics are not, is now much more driven by those issues than it is by ethnicity. So this is the way it functions. I'm saying I'm not saying it, it makes sense. I'm just saying the way it functions is, in critical theory is there are certain intersectionalities that in in reality have more weight than others. Right. And right now, gender and sexuality is at the top of weight in in uh, in, in in critical theory, and therefore in these in these conversations. So would, would, is, this, is it fair to say, Andy, that maybe to, at the most simplified we can get with it, that uh, the reason that you highlighted that, that Latina mm -hmm. uh, Catholic was because if, if you have a, a worldview that it includes God, there's no room for you in critical theory. Yes, yes, yes. It, it makes you an oppressor to right. believe in God. You are an oppressor, oppressor by virtue of your belief in God. Right, okay. Well, Let's go. No, I'm saying that the tap. The, the, I thought that was included because our church not believe in gay No, and the Catholic Church Remember, historically. I'm just, I've only been no, that's great. That's great, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, the, I, I use the Catholic Church because coming from, you know, coming from, from, uh, from Central America, it, they're historically Catholic, right? And if you're in the Southwest, Catholic, uh, the. the I'm, I'm, I'm getting on thin ice here. Uh, broad categories. Catholicism among the Hispanic population is very high. Um, right. uh, and so I, I use that illustration because it was specifically brought up in an article by a critical race theorist, a critical right. theorist, who said, who, who, who addressed it and said, if they are Catholic, they cannot be oppressed because they believe these oppressive doctrines. They believe... They believe that there cannot be gay marriage. They mm -hmm. believe that there are, there's only male and female. They believe that 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 uh, conception that birth mm -hmm. begins at conception. Mm -hmm. These are all doctrines and beliefs that you cannot have and consider yourself an oppressed person. That's the way it's understood. I'm 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 telling you that's the way they think. It's not necessarily the way. It's ludicrous to me. Yeah, right, right. But that's the issue. Is and in, in, in Catholicism there are clear values mm -hmm. that. That you can't, you can't bring into critical theory, even if you are a minority ethnically, uh, or even sociologically. Right. 
Because let we me go. We about if you want. Let me go here, and then we'll come right over here. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. And then they would challenge a comment like that, or a, well, let's take a look. Is it building up or tearing down? They would say, well, what about reparations? What about affirmative action? These are ideas to build up. Yeah. Their definition of that would be to maybe build up. How would, what would your response be based on yeah. the yeah. Well, I think they're both really compelling things to talk about and can be wonderful conversations if you don't get in an argument about them. Mm -hmm. if you're listening to each other well. But re reparations, uh, reparations is meant to reestablish a level field. It doesn't really do that, but it's meant to do that. But it doesn't tell you how to build from there. It doesn't build anything from there. It just makes everybody at the same place. That's classic communism. Communism by, has only ever gotten people through revolution uh, to a level... How do they do that? By leveling everything, right? That's why you, that's why you have Cambodia. That's why you have uh, you have Russia. That's why you have because they leveled everything. But what got built was not was not equality. It was just more oppression. So in both those cases, I would say, and and even um, affirmative action as a concept is you know understandable. In its act, in, in what it's produced, mm -hmm. is open for debate as to whether it actually produced what it intended to. Right. Yeah. Can, I, can I push back on that for a second? Yeah. Um, the the whole issue of reparations, and you mentioned that it's to bring equality, and I I think uh, as an African American person, uh, I don't speak for all African American yeah. people, but I know that that there are things that are taking place right now in a number of areas. Uh, I'm sure you guys heard about the beach in California. It was a black-owned beach mm -hmm. that was taken through eminent domain. California yeah. returned that to a family, yeah. and they were able to sell it and, and, and get that money. So it wasn't about bringing equality. It was about addressing the wrong of what happened before. Yeah. Georgetown yeah. University just provided like 15.2, uh, I think it was a billion dollars, yeah. because the land that that was built on what used to be black-owned land sure. that was taken. Yeah. Right now, along the coast of South Carolina, there are a number of places right now that are being looked at that were taken through eminent domain from yeah. black families yeah. uh, to build training sites during World War II. Yeah. They weren't returned to the families. They turned them into wildlife sanctuaries, etc. Yeah. Those families are now trying to be uh, repaired for what was taken from them. Yeah. So it's not yeah. about... Yeah, I agree with you. I think, I think that it, it is about that in terms of a in terms of critical theory, which is broad, it's a, it's a, so you're, I, I agree with you, and that's the intent of what reparations should be doing, and when it's doing that, it's actually, it's actually correcting injustices. I agree with that. I think philosophically, right. reparations as a category is viewed as a way to, 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 to bring about some level of Broad equity. Yeah. Uh, but that's what that's what makes the conversation on race difficult. It does because if if you're talking about race and injustice, yes, things that have happened, you know, yeah. in, the, in the past, mm -hmm. um, and you start to talk about reparations, 
Yeah. The conversation is that uh, black people are trying to get equality. And so it becomes, it, it, it's using, com, you know, the, the, the conversation about communism, yes. which is a very negative conversation yeah. in, in, our, in our lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, it's using that conversation to say all these black people are trying to take from us so that they'll become equal. Yeah. No, it's not about that. It's about redress. So yeah. Debbie and I live in, in Chad's Ford. We live there. I'm the only African American in our neighborhood. Yeah. Not because African American people never wanted to live there before, but because the, the community itself was a restricted covenant community. Yeah. Okay. So if you're talking about, uh, just talking to the lady back here in the back. We were talking about things that are, if you, if you, the definition that you put there initially about critical race theory, it talked about systems and structures that have been in place uh, that advantaged, I don't remember yeah. the exact quote, that advantaged whites at the disadvantage uh, of people of color. So uh, we were talking about the uh, GI Bill. So what it's been said that the GI Bill is a, was the thing that provided the most generational wealth uh, in America because it provided for white soldiers only, people of color who served, my grandparents didn't, you know, my two grandfathers served in the army, they didn't get it, but the, so the uh, GI Bill was only available to white Americans from 44 up to 63. So in that time, it provided low interest loans, college benefits, uh, you know, Levittown, we got Levittown, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. there were seven Levittowns built around the country, which were white only, mm -hmm. okay? That generational wealth was taking place at the same time that the banks colluded to provide uh, what they call predatory lending. So a black person would buy a home, the same home that a white person would buy, but instead of getting a 3% three, 3 loan, you get a 12% loan. The home goes into default, they sell it to the next black person at a 12% loan. So those things that have disadvantaged a certain group of people, and I'm only talking about black people, I'm not talking about you know, Hispanic people or Asian people, Native Americans, things that have been done to them. But I can tell you, black people won't sit around talking about equality. We do talk about redress. We do talk about reparation, but we don't talk about equality. And, and so I think that when you when you combine, you know, the conversation about uh, let's address historical wrongs in our country. We're not talking about it from a communistic mindset. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I don't think we're disagreeing. What I'm saying is in reference to the question, the way it's talked about in critical theory is, is different than the way you're talking about it. I think there's overlap. So what I'm saying, philosoph philosophically, the, the, those things apply, they go a much broader way. And, the, and, and, and the, the question was, when somebody brings up, what about equality? What about reparations? Mm -hmm. And I say, yeah, well, it doesn't really deal with equality. Reparations don't deal with equality. And as a church, I think we have to be able to, to address those things like, you know, J.T. has been talking about, you know, our biblical response to it. But when we think about, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Matthew being a tax collector and wanting to go back and, you know, and, and he's talking essentially about reparations. You know, I stole from the people, I've done these things, but... And, and so, but, but in the church, we've taught the church, and I'm part of the predominantly white church, the conversations I have with people in church is that we shouldn't, you know, those things happened before, and we shouldn't address them now, it should all be about love and let's forgive by the church and so forth. 
But it's it's a difficult thing. I'm just saying for me personally, it's a difficult thing to uh, to talk about these things when for somebody you know like me who is not necessarily looking for a redress, but just looking for more of an, an understanding of a mindset that uh, that says we need to to deal with some things. You know, South Africa did a, a truth and rec reconciliation. Jay, can I jump in real quick? So, jumping back to our sister's question. One way to address this is we have to define terms. So, to answer your question, one thing we need to do is define what we're actually saying when we say it, which is what helped Jay and Andy just understand that they're not fully disagreeing on what they're talking about. So, terms get thrown around, and what we need to do is we need to bring it back to the center and define our terms as we're talking through these things. Um, I had another thought, but I, I, I forgot it. <laughs> yeah, and we're, on, on this topic, what we're talking about is one part of the broader racial situation, or the broader racial tensions. And we're not looking in this Renewing Your Mind today to cover the entire topic. In talking about critical theory, it would make sense that the answers we're trying to give are related to critical theory and not the broader uh, racial harmony conversation, which is part of what you're hitting. So I think there's a lot of, uh, I, I, you, you've talked to any of us, all three of us at various points about this, and we have a lot of points of agreement. I think the, the, the reason you're hearing words used the way they're being used now is because this is addressing the topic of critical theory. Okay, I had pointed to one other person who I'd promised to speak. So let's go ahead, patience, and then we'll see what time it is. Oh yeah, the question was, what advice do you have uh, for engaging this topic in a classroom? Whether, uh, maybe you're a student or even a teacher. What, what counsel would we have for people there? Yeah, I think in, in a lot of, <clears throat> even the way I, I, I set this up, was, was trying to engage people who are who are in the place where these ideas are being talked about as ideas, which campuses is one of the biggest. Yeah. You can also, it can also happen in various ways in your employment, um, particularly if there are certain policies that come into place where you realize this is what's formed the ideas behind the policies. Um, I think it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I, I was a Marxist, and the minority in our group, in our class, was this one white Reagan Republican who wore a cowboy hat. And, uh, and we were just brutal. We were self-righteous, we were brutal, we understood everything. Our professors backed us because they, because they were indoctrinating us. Um, the, 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 I think as a student um, who's a Christian in, in, that, in that environment, first of all, you are engaging in warfare idea warfare and spiritual warfare and so you need to pray you need to, you know you need to, to to cling to christ say lord I'm, I'm not here to change this class this is a this is a way of thinking a philosophical orientation in academia now that is not changeable um but there are people here who were like me who bought into it 
because I didn't have Jesus. And some people looked beyond my rhetoric to the person and said, I, I know what you're, and I hear you saying, and you're going to come out, because there's a, as much as people like to describe the university as a place of ideas, it's not really at this point. It's a place of indoctrination, um, and it's a place of conformity for most people, and uh, professors and students. And so I think that, that may be changing, but it may not, and sometimes it can overreact, and next thing you know, you have a whole different indoctrination taking place. I think if, if, if I'm a student in this environment, I'm recognizing my opportunities are going to be relational, not debate. In debate, I want to be known for where I stand, but I, I, want, to, I want to live out of the Beatitudes. You know, you, me getting you to agree with me is never my goal. Me defending myself is never necessary. And God will use opportunities because you'll also have, most students, if you engage your fellow students in a way that's, that you don't just retreat into into Christian world, there are lost souls, massively lost souls. They'll perform one way in a classroom and another way alone. And so I would say, Lord, help me to deal with the people behind the ideas, not just the ideas they're espousing. Good hand it over there. Um, before Andy closes, I do want to make just one statement regarding the, the GI Bill, because um, those laws have changed, and I, I am a direct recipient of the GI Bill. Um, and my father's 30 plus years of service to the Navy. Um, without that, I would not have been able to um, fully get into that college education. So I, I didn't want us to leave thinking that those things were unchanged. Because uh, the GI Bill helped me get to where I am now, so I just wanted to mention that. Good. Let me uh, let me close us there. I know there are probably lots more questions, but you sat through a hour and a half church service, a twenty-minute members meeting, uh, and an hour and a half of this stuff. I don't know whether to commend you or call you crazy, um, but. Uh, but let's 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 thank these guys, Andy in particular, for serving us. And let me draw your attention back to Andy's very the very early his opening comments, that he he had no expectation that his his lecture would somehow have us all leaving thinking exactly the same. Uh, and listen, it's okay that we differ on these things. What's not okay is if we differ sinfully. And so let's differ well with one another. Let's learn from one another and enjoy the, the, JT mentioned the statement of faith, enjoy the statement of faith, which articulates a whole lot of what we have in common. All right, let me pray. Father, we do thank you for a context in the security of Christian relationship purchased by the blood of Jesus, made brothers and sisters with one another. In that security, we can have conversations like this. Lord, we, we leave here grateful that you have educated and informed us and eager that your spirit would be very active with our own, that we would we would conduct ourselves now in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Use us 
and this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, everybody.